Like I said, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Psalms, and then we've slowed down here in Psalm 119, so there's so much to cover. So we'll be looking at you know, the excellent word, part four, as we're going Psalms 119, verses 65 through 96, and again, making it through four more sections this morning. And I'm really glad for this, I think, because of kind of my own personal philosophy of ministry, Psalm 119 uh, just does my heart good because it reminds me of just how the word is foundational. Um, to everything that we do in this fellowship. And that's how it's always going to be. That's how it's always been. I think that's really important uh, because, you know, this week I've had the opportunity to teach the, the word of God in different classes. I've had the opportunity to listen to the word being taught, but I've also seen what happens when, you know, Christians or professing Christians depart from the word of God. And they choose to say, well, that's outdated or we don't believe that. And I, and I see this struggle and I see this strife and I see what happens in nations when they turn from the word of God. I've seen what happens in families when they turn from the word of God. I see what happens in the lives of individuals when they turn from the word of God. And so I just want to encourage you today to, to really say, you know what, I'm going to just trust in the word of God. I'm going to seek to understand it. I'm going to seek to apply it to my life. I'm going to seek to hold fast to it. And so that I won't be one of those casualties, one of those individuals, one of those families, one of those nations, one of those churches who choose to depart from the word of God. I, I just can't do it. And so I'm encouraged as I went through this study, and I hope you'll be encouraged this morning to just stick with the word of God to hold on to it, to trust it, and to know that God reveals himself through it. So Psalm 119, let's go through our first section here at 65 through 72, the Hebrew letter Teth. And we start off with verse 65, where the psalmist writes, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. And so here we have really the thankfulness from the heart of the psalmist. He's thankful that God has dealt with him according to his word. And so the application for us is immediate. The application for us is to thank the Lord for how he's dealt with us according to his word. The things that he's brought from his word into our lives. And so we can start off by thanking him for the past. Thanking him for the way that he saved us. Thanking him for the way that he's drawn us to himself. Thanking for the ways that he's gifted us and enabled us to do ministry. We can also thank him for the present. And that usually is a little more challenging, right? Because there may be things in our present situation that we're not liking, that we don't see how it's going to turn out. We're not understanding why things that they are. But, but we can thank him for the present because we know that he's been faithful in the past. And we believe that he'll be faithful in the future. So thank him for the past. Thank him even for what's going on in the present. And then thank him for the future. Thank him for what's coming next. Because we understand that God is a God who, who calls all things, you know, as though that they are not. He's a God that he knows the end from the beginning. And so by faith, we know that one day it will all be well with us. So we can thank God for the future. There's a lot of uncertainty in this world. And there's always been a lot of uncertainty. We just have more access to the uncertainty than there's ever been before. And also, there's been more people, or sorry, there are more people on planet Earth than there's ever been before. There are more weapons than there have ever been before. There are more diseases than there have ever been before. And so as we put all those pieces together, we understand why the world looks so bleak. And we also understand that the Bible teaches us that things will get worse and worse until Christ returns. So none of that should surprise us. And so what we need to do is take a step back from what's going on in this world and say, well, what does God say about this whole thing? 
Not what does Fox say or what does CNN say or what does my favorite podcaster or blogger say. What does the word of God say? Let me tell you what the word of God says. Romans 8 verse 28. It's almost like I get paid every week for (laughs) using this verse, but I don't care. Romans 8 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I just want to remind you of that verse over and over again. You know, and, and maybe one day at my funeral, you'll be like, man, Steve was always about Romans eight twenty eight. That would be a great thing for you to remember about me. Because what happens when we truly believe Romans eight twenty eight, when we truly believe the word of God, as, as the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, when we believe Romans eight twenty eight, well, that can lead us to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5. Verses 16 through 18. So let me read you 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If we're locked only into our present situation, then we won't rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Because we say, well, how, why should I give thanks for this? But... If we know that this present circumstance, as bad as it is, is something that God's going to work together for my good, then what will happen is because I believe Romans 8, 28, then I can rejoice always. Then I can pray without ceasing. Then in everything I can give thanks because I know as dark it is is right now, God's going to work it out. He's promised. It's not I'm going to work it out. It's not I'm going to figure it out. It's not I can understand. It's how he's going to do things. So we see how the Bible fits together. The more that we understand and know the word of God, the more that we have all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, then what will happen is is we can actually live it out. But if we don't know the word of God, if we don't understand these things, if we don't understand these fundamental truths, then it's going to be very hard. And and that's what's been a a shocking thing to me, and I shouldn't be shocked by it, but day after day after day, I'm surprised at how many professing Christians are ignorant of the word of God. They just don't know what it says. And so because of that, they are not able to walk these things out. So I would encourage you, and I'm probably preaching to the choir, but I would encourage you to, to make it your life goal to just know the word of God. Because what's going to happen, as you know the word of God, you'll get to know the God of the word. That, that's just how it works. All right, let's move on to verses 66 through 68 now. The psalmist writes, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, For I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Okay, there's three applications I see here. Application number one is be teachable. Just be teachable. Ask God to teach you his word. I am absolutely convinced that God can do whatever he wants with a person when they're teachable. Now, if, if you and I are teachable, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden, oh, I'm teachable, now I can dunk a basketball. <laughs> I'm teachable, I can, I can run the 100 meters in, in 10 seconds. I'm teachable, and I, now I can, I can build the next Eiffel Tower. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, if you're teachable, God can do what he wants to do in your life. Whatever his plan is for you, whatever his purpose is for you, whatever, um, you know, uh, ministry he has for you, God can do that in your life if you're teachable. So you and I can actually um, restrict God's working in our life by being unteachable, by being stubborn, 
Because it says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, a humble heart is a teachable heart. But if we're proud, if we say, well, I know it and I'm too smart and God's not doing things my way, then we're not being teachable and then we're not usable. So number one is be teachable. Number two, be teachable. We're like, okay, that's a good one. Be teachable. Number two is accept chastening. (laughs) Accept chastening. Learn from God's discipline. Now, um, when when I was younger, I was constantly getting in trouble. I was lying. I was cheating. I wasn't necessarily stealing, uh, but I, I was doing all kinds of things and running around and getting in trouble. And then when it came time for those words, you wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> right then I ran away. <laughs> I tried to find a place to hide. I wasn't willing to accept chastening. And that's how we as believers can be. But we need to learn from God's discipline. We need to receive God's discipline. And because this is such an important point and, and a point that sometimes professing Christians avoid, I want to dig down in it for just a minute. So would you turn to your New Testament to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment? I want to look at Hebrews 12, and I would encourage you to make note in your mind of this chapter. Hebrews 12 is incredibly important. I want to look at verses 5 through 11. Very practical here. So as you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, picking up in verse 4, the writer to the Hebrews and we can debate on who that author is another time. Uh, but what he's doing is he's, he's speaking to believers that are thinking about leaving Christianity, going back to Judaism, things are getting too hard, persecution is too great. And the, the author is encouraging these believers to receive the chastening of God, to receive the discipline of God, to learn from it. So here's what we have. Uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 11. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening or the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Okay, before we get into that last verse there, verse 11, I just want to kind of the big picture here. Is he saying, like, whenever God chastens us, whenever God disciplines us, whenever he kind of gives us that spiritual spanking, if you will, he's treating us as a father treats a son. So it's actually a sign that you're a son or daughter of God when you're chastened. When you do something you're not supposed to do and God makes sure you get found out, that's his chastening. That's his discipline because he wants you to do something different. And, And so we understand that. So it's actually God's love that he chastens us. It's a way of conforming us to the image of his son. That's part of what he's doing. So notice that there at the end of verse 10, he wants us to be partakers of his holiness. He wants us to be holy people. He wants us to enjoy a holy separate lifestyle. And then here it is. He brings it all to conclusion. Verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Right? You experience this as a kid. You got a spanking. And directly afterwards, you didn't say, well, dad, well, thank you. (laughs) I mean... 
that was just refreshing. I, I really, <laughs> really appreciate what you did for me. No, he says that whenever we're chastened by the Lord, we're not going to like it in the moment. You know, it, it's, it's going to be something that we don't enjoy. But notice what happens. It's painful in the present. Nevertheless, afterwards, what does it do? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's beautiful that when God chastens us and we receive it, then what happens is, is God brings this peaceable fruit of righteousness out of our lives. He trains us. And so whenever God chastens us, let's receive it, knowing that he's doing it for a good reason, a good purpose, that he wants to bear fruit through us. He, he wants that, that wonderful fruit to come out. And, and so this ties into things like, you know, the pruning um, there in John 15, uh, so that we might bear fruit, more fruit and much fruit, all that sort of thing. So please understand, be teachable, accept chastening. Now, as we turn back to Psalm 119, verse 60, the third application here is to know that God is good and does good. Look at verse 68 again. You are good and do good. So it's, that, that's so vital. Know that God is good and does good. You know, at the, at the grammar school, you know, I teach at the upper school, Brandon and I teach at the upper school, and at the grammar school, they have a saying, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And they use it in an ingenious way as, as, a, as a kind of a call and response so that kids will settle down. So when the teacher says God is good, then the kids have to say all the time, and then the teacher will say all the time, and the kids will say God is good, and it settles them. You know, and so it's good because that's, that's, that's really interesting because you could say, well, those teachers at the grammar school, well, they're just misusing that, but they're not misusing it because this reality should settle us. In the midst of all the craziness of this world, in the midst of all the people on YouTube wanting us to tell how bad God is and how God should do things and, and all of this madness, in the midst of that, we should say God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That should settle our hearts. You see, that has to be fundamental. I have come to believe that this is the fundamental thing for us as Christians to believe, the goodness of God. That everything else is built on that. Because if God isn't good, why should I listen to him? If God isn't good, why should I study his word? If God isn't good, why should I believe anything about him? But I believe it's clear that God is good. And so it's my job to trust that. It's my job to trust that he's good all the time. One of the fundamental verses that, that I live by is, is found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. You don't have to turn there. I just want to give a little background. God shows up to Abraham's house and he talks to him for a bit. And it's right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's an interesting scene in Genesis 18 where Abraham is kind of debating with God, if you will, or maybe bartering with God. Hey, God, would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50 righteous? And God's like, sure. And then Abraham's like, well, what about 45? <laughs> what about 40? And he kind of goes all the way down to 10. But Abraham says something in that chapter that has been cemented in my heart, that has actually been something I've come back to over and over and over and over again. I direct other people to come to it. It's this in Genesis 18, 25. This is what Abraham says to God. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I would encourage you to study that verse. I would encourage you to pray over that verse. I would encourage you in the quietness of your heart to say, do I believe that? 
as, as missiles are raining down on Israel, as craziness in the Ukraine, as there's all kinds of stuff in this world, do you believe in the quietness of your heart that the judge of all the earth will do right? Because I would argue how you answer that question will determine the trajectory of your life. If you believe in the midst of all the craziness, you know what? I can't figure this out. I'm glad I'm not president of the world. <laughs> I don't know how this is going to work. But I believe that the judge of all the earth will do right. Then what happens is you can settle in and settle down and do what God's called you to do. If you don't believe this, if you don't believe the judge of all the earth will do right, well, you're going to find yourself in a constant state of turmoil. Because let me break the hard news to you. You can't fix this world. And you know that you can't fix this world because you can't fix yourself. You can't even fix the things going on in your life on your own. You need God's help for that. So how in the world is apart from God, you're going to fix all this other stuff. But we live in a world where literally billions of people are trying to fix things in their own power. It's not working. Get things done in their own ability and their own wisdom. It's not happening. So for you and I, it's time to settle down and say, do, do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that he's going to do right? Because I think once we settle into that and trust that God will do right, then we can simply do what he's called us to do today. Not worry about tomorrow, not worry about these other things, not worry about all these things that we have absolutely no control over, but instead just, what does he call me to do? Well, he's called me after service today to look to people in the eye and say hi to him. He's called me to, to do that sort of thing. What has God called me to do right now? He's called me to try to teach the word of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That's what he called me to do. He's called you right now to simply to, to listen to the word of God and, and to be discerning and not to just buy whatever I'm selling just because I'm saying it, but to compare it with the word of God. That's what he's called us to do. And what we'll find is what he's called us to do is actually doable. What he's actually called us to do shouldn't bring all this stress and frustration and anxiety, but we get stress and frustration and anxiety because we try to do all these things he hasn't called us to do. But what did Jesus say? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if we find ourselves in a place today where we can't settle down, we can't rest, then it's not Jesus was lying. It's that what happens is either we're not yoked to him or we've taken on additional yokes. Well, I'm yoked to Jesus, but I'm also yoked to this thing and to that thing and to that thing and to that thing. And all of a sudden, well, why am I so burdened? Well, it's not Jesus's fault. It's our fault. Simplest thing, get rid of those other yokes. <laughs> get rid of those other things and simply be yoked to him. All right, let's move on. Verses 69 and 70 in Psalm 119 says, The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. <laughs> Vivid imagery, okay? This heart is as fat as grease. What in the world? It's really speaking of a person who's, who's all about kind of the stuff of this world, of being enriched in themselves, overindulgence, all that kind of stuff. That, that's kind of the idea here. So, so what's, what can we get from 69 and 70? I think simply this, choose to obey the Lord no matter what the unbelievers around you are doing, okay? Choose to obey the Lord no matter what the unbelievers around you are doing. 
Because notice, he says that. The proud should afford to lie against me, right? So unbelievers are coming against him. But what does he say? But I'm going to keep your precepts with my whole heart. Okay, they're seeking after fulfillment in this world, but I'm going to delight in your law. So I love that. You're not going to be held responsible for what people outside of you do. When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, at the Bema seat, you're going to get to answer for you. You won't have to answer for other people. You're going to answer for what you did, done, how you obeyed him. So I love that in Joshua 24, 15. I'll just uh, share the last part of it. You're familiar. Joshua 24, 15. Joshua said at the end of his public ministry, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, you guys have to choose what you're going to do. You have to choose who you're going to follow. I can't make that choice for you. But he says, I can make the choice for me. As a leader of my household, we're going to serve the Lord. So, so just keep choosing to serve the Lord. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So the psalmist is able to recognize, like we already saw in Hebrews 12, that affliction is a good thing. That, that chastening is a good thing. And so why, why is it good? Because God uses affliction and tribulation for our benefit, to grow us, to mature us, to strengthen us. God doesn't want us to be like weak Christians. He wants us to be strong. But in order to get strong, you have to go through some things. In order to be strong, you have to go through some adversity. We understand this, right? We all have coaches that designed difficult practices to prepare us, and we hated those coaches in the moment. If you played football, you know, back in the day, and you had two-a-days, you hated two-a-days, okay? But you knew afterwards you were prepared to do something that you weren't prepared before you went through those two-a-days. So that's what God's calling us to, this, this affliction, this tribulation. He's preparing us. He wants us to be tough, to be used by him. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Very simply, God's word is priceless. God's word's priceless. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? So just stop and think about that just a minute. Think about a person who literally owned the whole world. He owned everything. We all had to pay him rent, <laughs> right? He, he owns everything. But then Jesus says, what does it profit him? He owns it all, but he loses his own soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, kind of talking about game night. You, you may dominate on game night in just a couple of weeks. You may just be the monopoly king or queen and you have all that monopoly money and you're just swaggering around and you're feeling good and, and you walk out and you take that money over to Albertsons. They're not going to take it. You can't buy anything with that monopoly money. Well, that's how this money is of this world in heaven. You gained it all. And Jesus says, it's not getting you in. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't mean anything. And so for us, it's, it's a reassessing of our values to realize the word of God is priceless because it's how God has revealed himself to me. It's how I can grow in relationship with him. So I need to realize that the money of this world is in a sense monopoly money. It's, it's just a tool to be used for God's purposes. But my main goal is to know him, not just merely accumulate wealth. In fact, Jesus says, a man's life does not condense, I'm sorry, consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not what it's to be about. 
All right, let's keep going. Psalm 119, let's look at verses 73 through 80 now. Hebrew letter Yod. It says in verse 73, your hands have fashioned, I'm sorry, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. All right, so let's put those two together uh, again, just a second. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So here it is. Since God is our creator, shouldn't he also be our teacher? Since God is our creator, shouldn't he also be our teacher? Now, it's interesting because for the trap that you and I as believers fall into, we say, oh, yeah, God's created me. And and before I was in my mother's womb, God knew me and he formed me together and he knit me together. But then what happens, we acknowledge him as our creator, but we look for other teachers. We say, well, I mean, I don't know. And can we really trust the Bible today? And 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 so, so maybe none of you guys think that in here. Awesome. There's lots of Christians who think that. There's lots of Christians who like, oh, I got to find another way. And so God is our creator. He should also be our teacher. Now he's equipped, you know, people to teach the word of God. I believe that he's gifted me to teach the word of God. But, but I'm, I'm actually just to be a tool in your life. Okay, I'm just to be somebody in your life that helps you understand the word of God better so you can get to know God better. I'm just a means to an end. That's all I am. I'm just, I'm just a bit player in what God's doing in his story. And so let him be your teacher. He's already your creator. Let him teach you. Let, let him speak to you. Let him show you. Verse 74, those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. I love this. The big idea here is that obedient believers are a blessing to other believers. Obedient believers are a blessing to other believers. Notice, those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I've hoped in your word. A person who hopes in the word of God is a person who obeys the word of God, who who lives out the word of God. And so when other people who are believers get together with obedient believers, they bless each other. And so the best thing, please hear me, the best thing that you can do for fellow Christians is to obey the Lord as much as possible. The absolute best thing that you can do for your spouse, for your children, for the believers in your workplace, for the believers here in this fellowship, for the believers wherever you might find them, is for you to obey the Lord as much as possible. As you obey the Lord, you become a blessing to others. God God can make you broken bread and poured out wine as you obey. That's what God can do. Let me give you a couple of verses that speak about this, this incredibly high value of obedience. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. This is that occasion where Saul had disobeyed, hadn't killed all the Amalekites, hadn't destroyed all the stuff. And so Samuel comes and confronts him about this. And this is what Samuel says to Saul. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And then this is what the Lord Jesus said in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so how can we show that we love God? How can we just obey? Just obey. That's all that God wants from us is we read the word of God and we say, you know what? No matter how I feel, I'm just going to do that. That pleases the heart of God and that blesses fellow believers. Let's look at verse 75 now. It says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness 
you have afflicted me. It's a, lot of a, a whole lot of affliction going on. It's what we have here. But what I, I want to bring out from verse 75 here is that whatever affliction God brings into our lives or allows into our lives, however we want to talk about those different things, ultimately God uses those afflictions for our ultimate good. For our ultimate good. And so I want to give you a verse to contemplate, to be reminded of. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. This is what Paul said. For our light affliction. And remember, Paul suffered a bunch. And he says, for our light affliction, notice, which is but for a moment or but for the moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This is radical, right? God's way of doing things is way different from our way of doing things. It says in Isaiah that God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts, all of that. Please hear me. God wants you to have the maximum amount of glory that you can have in heaven. God wants you to have as much glory as possible. God wants you to have this eternal weight of glory. So he's going to bring or allow afflictions and tribulations and difficulties because he knows that's his process of conforming you to the image of his son so that you might have that maximum glory. That's what he wants to do. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Verses 76 and 77 says, let I pray your merciful kindness be for my comfort according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. What I take from this is that it's okay to pray for mercy in the midst of affliction. When you're struggling and things are hard and you don't know why the the ceiling keeps caving in, pray for mercy. Ask for help. Ask for God's merciful kindness in the midst of that. But, But here's the key in all of it. The key is surrendering to God's authority. The key is surrendering to God's authority, that he's the authority, that he's the boss, that if, if he wants to, you know, if it's getting too hot and you want him to kind of turn down the thermostat, if you will, to ask for that, but to realize that ultimately he's the boss, that he's the determiner of that happens. So he's the boss. He knows what's best. Because remember, and this ties into what we said earlier, and I want to expand on it for just a minute, is the scripture says that, that God wants to make us into vessels of honor. Now, we live in a very utilitarian society and, and we don't really value, um, you know, beauty and intricacy anymore, right? Things are just like really functional. A lot of times they're not very pretty. We look at the architecture that build, buildings are thrown up. It just looks like blocks that, you know, it's like, where's the art? But that's not what God wants to do for you. Okay, God doesn't want to just make you into, you know, just another building, another vessel like all the rest. God is actually taking you and he wants to make you this this golden vessel. But, But in order to make you this golden vessel, there's a lot of impurities that God wants to refine out of you. So he's going to bring those afflictions. He's going to bring those tribulations so that as you're being refined, you're being purified. He can remove those impurities for you, but he's going to continue. Please hear me. Your entire life making you into that vessel of honor. And he's going to be intricately carving things in there. your, Your life is going to be this intricate design that he has been thinking about since eternity past. And so you, your job as a vessel is actually to leave yourself on the workman's table. (laughs) 
You know, for us, we're like these animate vessels. And as soon as we feel like he's turned his back, we crawl off the table (laughs) and we go outside of the workshop. He has to go looking for us, grab us and bring us back onto the table. But he wants to make you into this design. But think about it. Think about if, if you were that vessel, right? And think about the pain as that slow and painful process. He's carving and he's shaping and he's making you. That's what God's doing in your life. But he's making you into something beautiful. And because we're told in Romans 8, 29, what is this beautiful image? He actually wants you to make you into a vessel that looks just like Jesus Christ. His goal for you and for me is to conform us into the image of his son. To make you and I into the most beautiful vessel possible. But the way he does that is through tribulation, is through affliction, is through hardship. And we see that the life of the Lord Jesus. The life Jesus lived, the best life that's ever been lived, was not a pain-free life was not an easy life. It it was a life that was walked in obedience to the Father, but through those things that God allows into our life, he's gonna make us into this beautiful vessel. Verse 78 says, let the proud be ashamed for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. And, And so trust God to take care of all the proud liars of this world, right? Don't, don't worry about that. He's going to take care of it. You just keep focusing on God's word. Don't go on Facebook and have to defend yourself against this thing and that thing. Trust the Lord and you just keep on doing what he's asked you to do. Verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me for those who know your testimonies. And so verse 79, what I get from that is is seek to fellowship with other believers. You know, seek to be around other believers. And, And I want to encourage you, and I encourage me to kind of shift our focus on fellowship. So often we fellowship with other believers and kind of the thing is, and I hear this a lot as I, do, as I interact with people who are like looking for a church. Like, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'll like that church. You know, I don't know if that church has something to offer me or do they have this ministry or do they have ministry? I, I would encourage you to change your perspective and say ministry and fellowship is not about what I can get, but it's about what I can give. What gifting, what abilities can I share with people? What can I bring to the table? How can I bless other people's lives? Because what happens is as we do that, then we'll be blessed ourselves, right? It's more blessed than to give than to receive. And so kind of thinking about this fellowship for just a minute, would you turn to Hebrews once again? This time we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. You're turning there to Hebrews chapter 10. We've talked about this letter to the Hebrews just a moment ago. Uh, but, but what's happening here and kind of tied into the persecution, the difficulty, the hardship is people stop fellowshipping together, right? They're like, well, why, why do I want to go? What happens if, you know, somebody rushes in and, and grabs us? And I, I don't know that I want to hang out with believers anymore. And so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, here's what we read. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I love that. So hold on to your confession of faith. Hold on to your trust in Jesus Christ. Why should I hold on to it? Because Jesus is faithful. Why should I be faithful to him? Because he's been faithful to me. When I was yet a sinner, he died on the cross for me. And so he's never betrayed me. He's never left me. So why should I, why should I be unfaithful to him? Okay. And then verse 24, notice, let us consider one another. 
So let's not, not consider ourselves. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So the main reason I should fellowship with other believers is so I can consider them. So I can encourage them. So I can exhort them. So, so I could stir up love and good works in their lives because by doing so, I actually help them become that vessel of honor that God wants them to be. And, and that, that is an incredibly, incredible, important thing that I can actually help other people achieve more glory. That I can actually be a participant in what God is doing in their life. And that's super exciting. And, and so it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And here it is, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. In other words, he's saying, keep going to church. <laughs> Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So our goal in coming to fellowship is, is how can I consider other people? How can I stir up love and good works in there? How can I exhort them to continue running the race? How can I help them holding fast to that confession of faith so that they might be faithful, obedient Christians who bless others, but also so that they might receive that full weight of glory that God has planned for them. That's an exciting, exciting thing. Let's turn back to Psalm 119 as we move into verse 80 now. It says, let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes that I may not be ashamed. Now, it's pretty crazy. You guys understand this. We live in such a crazy world where shame is almost a thing of the past. And it's interesting, this has happened in different times throughout history where cultures have gotten rid of shame and they've just become incredibly debauched. But for us as believers, we don't want to be ashamed in front of God, right? And we don't also don't want to be ashamed in, in front of the world. We want to be people of honor. And so really simply what's happening here in verse 80 is obedience to God's word spares us from shame, if we say, I don't want to be ashamed, what should I do? I should just keep obeying the word of God. And, and so because if, if unbelievers don't like it, if, if you know, unbelieving family members reject me because I, I believe in the word of God, that really shouldn't matter to me. What should matter to me is I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want my, to lose my witness and I don't want to be ashamed before God. Well, the answer is simple. If you don't want to be an ashamed Christian, just be an obedient Christian. Just be obedient and you won't be ashamed. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna take this next section all in one shot. Um, this is planned. This is not because I'm, I am keeping my eye on the clock, but this is planned. Psalm 119 verses 81 through 88, uh, the Hebrew letter Kaf. But what we're gonna see is this whole section, it really has one idea. So I wanna read through these verses. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin and smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They almost made an end of me, but I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. And so we see here in these verses that the author of the Psalms is, is in a difficult situation, right? He's in hardship, he's in affliction, he's in tribulation. But here's the simple thing I wanna get from these verses, 81 through 88, is while we wait for deliverance, we're to still trust God's word. 
Okay, they just don't, don't flee from God's word in the midst of, of, of difficulty, in the midst of hardship. Stick closer. So in the, in, while you wait for God to deliver you, keep trusting God's word. All right, let's move on. Psalm 119, verses 89 through 96, our final section for today. Hebrew letter Lamed, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I love that. It could be translated forever, O Lord, your word is, or your word stands firm in heaven. So what is this telling us? This tells us that the word of God stands firm forever, that it's always trustworthy. That that there's not like, well, I'm going to trust the word of God today, but I need to get on the internet in the morning and see if there's something new I should trust. Some different direction to go. No, just stay firm with God's word. Be a person who fights the good fights of faith and finishes the race. And what's going to happen, you're going to be a person who's honored by God. You're going to be that vessel of glory. And so this is a beautiful thing for us because as this world is constantly changing and things are happening and all these things are going on, we need stability. We need a firm foundation. We need something that we can build our life upon. And the word of God is that thing. The word of God is a firm foundation for building our lives. I love how, uh, we, how we read this in Isaiah 40, verse 8. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God is enduring. And so if you're familiar with David Guzik and his ministry, it's called the Enduring Word, and it's based on this. Is that, that God's word stands forever, so you can trust it. Verses 90 and 91 Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances for all are your servants. Okay, so there's a a couple of of ideas woven together here in 90 and 91. The first idea is that God is always faithful. God is always faithful. So that's one of his attributes. In other words, that's one of his characteristics, that, that he is always faithful, that, that he's always someone you can place your faith in, that he's always going to do what he said. Now, the second kind of, and it's woven here in verse 90 and then into 91, where it says, you establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances for all of your servants. It's the idea that the earth and all its ordinances or all of creation are God's servants and that this creation declares the glory of God. Okay, so that, that when we look at creation, what it should do is it should point us back to God. It should enable us to say, wow, what amazing things that God has made. Romans 1 verse 20 tells us this. Romans 1 20, Paul wrote, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So anyone who's, who's willing, you know, with an open mind to consider that this is God's creation, They'll, they'll see the glory. They'll, they'll understand that. And so the application for you and I is, is to, let, to look around and let creation speak to you about the glory of God. I don't think you saw last week, there were a few nights where the full moon was crazy big. You know, and, and I'm no astronomer. I don't know what the phenomena was, why it was like that. I just knew that as I, I went on to kind of some evening walks, I just, I tried to make my walk so I could see the moon as much as possible. <laughs> as I was out walking and it was just amazing and it was glorious. 
You know, and, and sometimes in the morning you'll you'll see these beautiful sunrises, or in the in the af- in the afternoon you'll see the sunsets, and and it's beautiful, and it should cause us, if if we're not jaundiced, right? If we're if we're not kind of in this materialistic naturalism to say, man, this is wonderful, this is glory. God did this so that we might enjoy it. So let it point you back to God and His faithfulness. Verse ninety two. It says, unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Okay, so the word of God must be our lifeline in affliction, right? So, so it's, it's one thing to kind of sit in this study and understand these things and to, and to even agree with it. But if you don't make the word of God a part of your life, if it's not foundational to you, then there are afflictions that this world will bring that will overwhelm you. And so it's vital for us in the midst of those afflictions and tribulations, we've trained ourselves to go back to the word of God. Because that's what he says here. Unless your law had been my delight, then I would then have perished in my affliction. In other words, during times of peace, he had made the word of God his, his kind of like his delight so that when war came, he knew where to go back to. He, he, he had that within him. He had hidden God's word in his heart that he might not sin against the Lord. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Now, what does it mean, I will never forget your precepts? Because all of us forget things, right? I think what he means really here is that he's going to keep going back to it. He's going to keep on holding on to it. He's going to keep reminding himself of it. And so he's going to never forget God's precepts in the sense that he's never going to depart from it. He's going to keep going back to it because he realizes that they've given us him life. So please remember, God gives us life through his word. A believer who, who steeps himself in the word of God, takes it in, believes it, obeys it, is a believer who has life, right? The life's flowing out of him. Jeremiah you know, one of the most difficult ministries in human history. And this is what Jeremiah was able to write in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah was a guy in affliction. Jeremiah was a guy in tribulation. Jeremiah was a guy who was tempted to give up. And yet he found the word of God and the word of God gave him joy and rejoicing and enabled him to continue on. Verses 94 and 95, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. Okay, this is, this is a hard truth, but it's a reality. Obedience to God's word will bring difficulty from unbelievers. If we're obedient to God's word, we're going to have difficulty from unbelievers. But the exhortation, the encouragement for you and I is just to stay faithful to God's word. Just stay faithful to it. Many denominations, many groups have gone gone ahead and departed from the word of God because they couldn't take the heat. They couldn't take the heat from unbelievers. And so what they do, they, they capitulated. They just gave up. And so for you and I, let's not be those people. Let's be those people who realize, I'm going to take the heat. I'm going to stay true to God's word because this is what Paul warned in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, we can also say those who don't want to suffer persecution can just stop living godly. 
right? Let me just, let me just kind of take myself out of the situation. Let me take myself out of the battle. I'm going to exhort you, please don't, right? Stay in the battle. Suffer for, for Christ knowing that it's part of what God is doing to make you into that vessel of honor so that you might have that eternal weight of glory. I love Psalm 34, verse 19. I've mentioned it many times before, but it's a good one to to keep coming back to. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God's gonna deliver you out of every affliction. Even the affliction that kills you, God's gonna deliver you out of that because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's going to deliver you straight into his presence. Final verse, verse 96. I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now that verse in the New King James, it's a bit of a head scratcher. Kind of like, what in the world's going on? So I, I wanna share a couple of different ways that this verse is translated. The expanded Bible translates it this way. Everything I see has its limits, but your commands have none. Or the New English translation puts it this way. I realize that everything has its limits, but your commands are beyond full comprehension. So here's the big idea from verse 96. The word of God is the biggest and best thing we can study. The word of God is the biggest and best thing that we can study. The word of God is the key to everything else. So, So you and I, you know, we'll not be wasting our lives if we become experts in the word of God, because what will happen is we become experts in the word of God, we'll be experts in the God of the word. Now, so, but that's key. Please, 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 please don't study the word of God for studying sake. Study the word of God so that you might know the God of the word. That's key. There's lots of people who can run circles around me, teaching a Bible study, telling me about the original languages, but they don't know God. They've taken this book and it's merely become a textbook to them. I would encourage you, study this book because it's the primary way that the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who's bringing you back to himself eternally, that's how he's chosen to communicate with you. So as you do that, he's going to open up to you and help you know him better. All right, let's close with three quick applications taken from our study today. Number one, and so these are all choices. These are all choosing. You and I can choose this. So number one, would you choose to be teachable? And, and I would argue that you are choosing to be teachable because you've stayed here and stayed mostly awake <laughs> during this entire time. And so choose to be teachable. Choose to be a person who's humble, knowing that that God gives grace to the humble. And that as you are teachable, you can fulfill that purpose that God has created you for. Number two is choose to obey what you're taught. After you've learned it, after you've understood it, now you know what this word means, then actually just live that out. I'm just going to obey what I'm taught. And what you're going to find is as you obey, you're going to be a blessing to the believers around you. And then thirdly and finally, please choose to remain faithful in affliction. Life is going to be hard. Life is going to be difficult. Afflictions and difficulties and tribulations and persecutions and misunderstanding and all these things are going to be a part and parcel of life in a fallen world. But, but would you stay faithful? Just stay. Fight the good fight. Finish the race knowing that an exceedingly great reward awaits you.